I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. We tend to think about things in terms of anecdote. Uh, anecdotes which we interpret as good news or bad news in relation to some narrative that we take seriously. Long-term thinking tries to step away from or look up from or back away from anecdote and look at long-term trends which may or may not relate to narratives. They just happen. And so the rate of population growth for humans was trending upward for quite a while. And then in 1976, it deflected and started trending downward. And still trending downward. Um, a couple of years ago, Steven Pinker gave a talk here in the series on uh, the decline of violence, which has been a secular trend for millennia and centuries and years and practically down to the month level. Our speaker tonight is, is uh, building, in a sense, on Pinker's work, which was called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and looking at some of the dynamics and mechanics and how it actually works, uh, the trends of morality over the very long term. Michael Shermer. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you. I really appreciate you all coming, and uh, it's a great honor to be here. Thinking long-term is really what it's all about. I was uh, telling Stuart uh, earlier that I thought it'd be funny if he was cryonically frozen and came back in a 1,000 years, and on the 10,000-year clock, there was a watering can <laughs> on top of the thing, and it became a religion. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it happens. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, not, it's not completely crazy. Um, uh, but yes, that's right, we, we should follow the trend lines, not the headlines. If you just pay attention to the headlines, of course, it seems like things are bad and getting worse, but if you follow the trend lines, then, then that is not the case. It's hard not to watch the news and see Syria and civil wars and, and uh, places like Ferguson and police shootings, things like this. It just seems like things are bad, but it's important to, to kind of put it in perspective, which I want to try to do tonight. I was thinking about this on, on uh, Sunday. I spoke at uh, a, a, a place called Sunday Assembly, Ironically, it was on Sunday, and uh, um, and uh, so as a tribute to the, they had some live music. They had a live band, so as a tribute for the, for the book, they played the Beatles song, "It's Getting Better All the Time," and I kind of remember the song. It's sort of a happy, positive song, but they had the lyrics up on the screen, and they got to the lyrics where he says, um, you know, something about I've been treating my woman bad, I've been beating her and keeping her from the things she loves. I thought, oh, Sir Paul beating your woman, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't write those lyrics today. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that has, was once, you know, just sort of a toss-off line. It rhymes. I beat my woman. It rhymes. Okay. It's, it's a little bit like uh, Jackie Gleason's character in The Honeymooners. Uh, you know, Ralph Cranman was going to hit his wife so hard, send her to the moon. Well, you, you, you can't say that kind of thing anymore. That, those are the sort of little 
pop culture examples of long-term trends that, that the shift happens slowly enough, you don't really notice it, then all of a sudden when you hear it, it's jolting. Beat my woman, wow. So that's the idea behind the arc. Of course, the inspiration is uh, the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At the climax of his march from Selma to Montgomery, as featured in the film, uh, where he gave the second most famous speech uh, he ever gave called How Long, Not Long, uh, which you can watch on YouTube. Unfortunately, that's the only place you'll see it because it's not in the film. They couldn't get the rights to the, to the speech, so they made up a speech, and he gave a different speech in the film, which is unfortunate because it is great. And he got that theme from um, a um, 19th century Unitarian preacher named Theodore Parker who talked about the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice in 1853, seven, seven, eight years before the Civil War. So that's some real optimism there. Uh, so King gave this speech in March of uh, 1965, and that summer, in August, uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed. So that's some fairly rapid progress. Uh, you can see Dr. King there looking, uh, overlooking the shoulders there of, Dr. of uh, President Johnson signing into law. And so the first chart I'll show of many tonight from the book uh, tracks the, the number, the growth of democracies. N not just any democracies, these are democracies that have scored eight or higher on the Polity Project. The Polity Project uh, rates uh, democracies on a one to 10 scale. So you have to score eight or higher to get on this graph. Which, and they, they base it based on things like how transparent the elections are, how fair they are, does everybody have the franchise, to what extent does money influence an election, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> Uh, you can see the little dip uh, after the, um, uh, during, during, uh, during, the during, during the Second World War and then the spike up and then a huge spike in the 1980s and 90s. We're up to 118 democracies in the world now uh, out of the 196 countries. So a predictable, um, a, a, um, a hypothesis that I would predict then would be this should continue growing. If it doesn't, uh, then I could be wrong in, in this particular area. Um, and so part of, uh, of, uh, of a liberal democracy is that everybody gets the right to vote, including blacks and women. Didn't happen here in the United States until 1920. This was one of the great suffragettes who's one of the heroes of my book. Her name is Inez Milholland. And she led a march on Washington, D.C. on that white stallion. Can you imagine following her? Can you imagine being one of the cops that have to stand in front of her and go, you can't go? Uh, never mind. <laughs> Uh, so here's how it happened. Again, an, a, a little burst after the um, First World War, uh, 19, you know, United Kingdom and the United States, and then, uh, and then another burst after the Second World War. Interestingly, you'll see that the first countries to grant women the right to vote were all islands. The first was Pitcairn Island in 1836. You remember Pitcairn Island, where the bounty mutineers ended up? Uh, you know, I, I think there was 13 of them total, and eight were women, and that was it. They got the vote. Uh, <laughs> Every country except Saudi Arabia, which is supposedly, I just put a question mark in the book because, you know, we'll see. Supposedly they're going to do this in 2015, we'll, we'll see. When I was researching, I thought it was amusing that the Vatican City said, never. Of course, they don't have any women, so that's part of the problem. And I don't just mean for voting uh, rights. Anyway, that's another subject. Um, and we're in the midst of another uh, rights revolution right now, gay rights and same-sex marriage. Uh, the beauty of this particular one is we can watch it unfold in real time, week by week, month by month, and, uh, and you can see who supports it and who opposes it. Uh, the transition came in uh, 2011 when uh, more people were in favor of it than were against it. You can see the shift in our own president, who in 2008 said, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I'm not in favor 
of gay marriage. And then in 2012, he said, I've concluded for me personally, it's important to go ahead and affirm that same-sex couples should be able to get married. Now, to be fair, you never know what politicians really mean, because uh, he said the 08 one when he was campaigning, and he said the 2012 one after he'd won the election. So, uh, But anyway, whatever it takes to get us there, uh, that's the process. You can see who tends to support it and oppose it. So one factor is age. The younger you are, the more likely you are to support a rights revolution of any kind in this particular one. The millennials, people born in 1981 or after, are most supportive of same-sex marriage. Uh, followed by Generation X and us baby boomers sort of pulling up the rear there and lagging way behind or the silent generation, but not to worry, they won't be with us that much longer. <laughs> no, sorry. <clears throat> no, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, age is, is definitely a factor, though. It's a predictive uh, variable in terms of uh, openness to experience and change and and, uh, and that sort of thing. And you can see who, who opposes it. We can, we can watch the speechifying by politicians and uh, political uh, pundits and, 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 and opinion makers. Uh, the the uh, white evangelical Protestants are the least in favor of it. Then black Protestants, white mainline Protestants, Catholics, and most in support of it are the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, people that tick the box for no religious affiliation are, are the most supportive of this particular rights rule. But that's always the case. Uh, so this is one of the theses of my book, is that uh, secular forces have been driving uh, moral progress uh, the most over the last several centuries. Even Dr. King, who was obviously a Baptist minister, but in his own autobiography, he said his strongest influences were Gandhi and the most liberal theologians that he had read when he was uh, in training. Uh, by the way, I have good news for you uh, who are in favor of not only gay marriage, but also pot legalization. I think this might be uh, not, not too controversial here in San Francisco. But <laughs> uh, uh, that is, if, if you still feel like your friends need theological support and so on, I found some biblical support uh, for uh, both gay marriage and pot legalization because in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, if a man lies with another man, he must be stoned. <laughs> So you can quote that to your religious friends and <laughs> go on Bill O'Reilly and anyway, it's a... Uh, so let's look just at a few of the positive things that have happened over the long-term trend lines. The abolition of slavery happened very rapidly in the late 18th and early 19th century, primarily driven by secular forces, the invention of rights, or if you will, the discovery of rights, the idea that humans have natural rights that you get by virtue of being human and that these should extend to more and more people, the expansion of the moral sphere to include more members of the, of the species. This all happened in this burst following um, the American Revolution and then the French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man and so forth. Uh, now, of course, my theological opponents in debates that I do often point out, well, wasn't it the Quakers and the Mennonites who led this revolution? It's true, they, they were some of the earliest to agitate for this a century before that happened. So their religious drive to make this happen uh, did nothing. Uh, the, the big champion is often uh, portrayed William Wilberforce. It's true, William Wilberforce did agitate in British Parliament to abolish the slave trade. By the way, he, he was trying to abolish the slave trade, not slavery itself as an institution, just stop the trade uh, for, uh, for, for England. And, uh, but also, he was kind of uh, obsessed with moralizing about people's behavior. He was one of those 
uh, we define uh, uh, people that are obsessed about that, that somewhere, someone out there, a Puritan, someone, someone out there is having fun, and, and we need to put a stop to this. And uh, so he was, he was on uh, about all sorts of things. Slavery was just one of his causes. But the main thing is that who were his opponents in parliament and in culture? It was all his fellow religionists who were citing right and left biblical passages uh, in support of the slave trade and slavery. In any case, if you believe that morals come from God and you believe that the creator of the universe wrote a book that's supposed to be the best book ever written about morals, how come he didn't get it right about slavery? How come there's nothing in there, something really straightforward and simple like thou shalt not enslave thy fellow humans? I mean, it's not hard. He could have put it in there. So instead, we get these sort of twisty, turny, spin-doctoring of, well, they weren't really slaves. They were more like housekeepers. Okay, well... Um, and uh, so, um, and then torture. Um, this is a witch being broken on, on this uh, device, and then waterboarded, sort of, uh, and stretched. Uh, and this, the, the, the abolition of judicial torture happened again around that same time, late 18th, uh, early 19th century, uh, in countries. Uh, the rack was discontinued. The rack, that, so you're uh, at the top, your two wrists go uh, there, and at the bottom, your two ankles go, and they stretch you apart. Uh, here are some from the uh, jail and the torture museum in The Hague, uh, which we just visited when we were there. And uh, so those, those devices are, are you, you strap them around your hand, or the, the bottom ones are for your thumb. They, they clamp down on your thumb. Um, and, and as you exit the museum, I found they, they had this on display. So this is the uh, goddess Justitia. And so note her accoutrements. She has... Uh, a, a balance scale for fair uh, trials, fair balance, fair and balanced. She has a blindfold, so she's not biased against whoever is on trial. And then she has a sword to enforce the law. Uh, and so this is what, what actually happened with the abolition of torture and, and slavery. The idea from utilitarian philosophers like Jeremy Bentham or the Enlightenment philosopher uh, Cesarea Beccaria, who the latter wrote a best-selling book in 1764, uh, an essay on crimes and punishments in which he wrote, there ought to be a fixed proportion between crimes and punishments. So this is the first to articulate the principle of proportionality. The punishment should fit the crime. Um, so this was the first uh, attempt, and this is why I use this example, to apply reason and science. I mean science in the broadest sense of using reason and empiricism and, and logic and, and testing ideas in the real world. Uh, that instead of moralizing about sinful behavior and then punishing people for their just desserts, torturing them and locking them up and so on. Let's see if we can reduce crime. Just treat crime as a problem to be solved rather than as a sin to be punished. And this is where it begins. It begins in the Enlightenment. Um, and, uh, and so you see, again, a burst of the uh, abolition of uh, capital punishment uh, and torture and capital punishment. Um, the idea behind the guillotine, believe it or not, was a bit of progress. That is, instead of torturing people with those devices, the idea was to eventually kill them, but kill them after maximal suffering. Uh, and, and so these devices, the guillotine, and of course, the old Sparky, the electric chair, which didn't always work. And the reason these were abolished is because um, th the idea was that, well, maybe they're still suffering. And, and this is why um, uh, lethal injection is still, is now, again, considered something controversial because it, it doesn't apparently work very well. Although I find this sort of weird. You know how they use, the, the last couple have been botched? You, you notice they use this word botched, which is kind of weird because the guy died. It wasn't botched, they killed him, it worked. 
but, but our intuitions are that, but he groaned and he moaned and it took two hours and they had to keep giving injections. The whole point of an execution now is that it's supposed to be uh, suffering free. You just make it as quickly as possible. Uh, we, so anyway, I just find this so weird that the, the, these guys can't do this very efficiently in the 21st century. I mean, I've been a pet owner my whole life, a dog, dog owner, and I've had to euthanize some of my dogs. You take them to the vet. It's a heartbreaking thing. You, you, they have a you know, blanket, and he gives them a shot. He falls asleep. He gives them a shot. The heart stops. The whole thing takes like three minutes. Just take these guys to the vet. These guys know what they're doing. Again, don't, 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 don't take everything I say seriously here. My prediction for the, uh, well, the death penalties on death row in America, it's the, we're the last of the Western democracies to have. The death penalty, I'm predicting by 2025, this will be gone. Uh, the only reason there was this huge burst in the late 80s, early 90s, was because of the crime wave in the 70s and 80s, due in part to the illegal drug trade, where there's a, when there's a, a no free market for a product, then you have a black market. Where there's a black market, you have criminals and so forth. So once that was over, then the number of uh, death penalty, uh, death sentences given began to decline. And then finally, I also deal with animal rights. Um, this is probably the next rights revolution to come about after same-sex marriage. That whole thing will be over. Oh, by the way, I'm predicting that will be over this year because the Supreme Court's supposed to... Supreme Court's supposed to vote in June uh, on a particular case, and, and if it goes the way we think it'll go, then, uh, then legally, the legal battle will be over. The cultural battle will take another five or ten years, and then same-sex marriage will be exactly like interracial marriages today. What? Right. No one even talks about this anymore. But that was a thing in the 60s. Four percent of Americans supported interracial marriage in 1959. Four percent. Now no one even talks about it anymore. So that's where we're going. By the way, I also predict, mark my words here since we're on tape, uh, that religions will take credit for the same-sex marriage revolution. <laughs> they will. They'll say, you know that Episcopalian minister? That was our guy. Yeah, okay, well, but we have the surveys that I, I showed you. Uh, and, and so uh, the animal rights movement really began with, again, another Enlightenment philosopher, utilitarian, Jeremy Bentham, who said the question is not can they reason or can they talk, but can they suffer? So uh, our moral considerations have changed, shifted from, again, from this idea of, of, of sinful behavior that should be punished to the survival and flourishing, or in the other direction, the suffering and death of sentient beings. And so I, I use sentient beings rather than humans because there are other sentient beings that can suffer. Uh, and so how far is the moral arc bent? Well, everyone today, conservatives included, are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. You don't see signs like this anymore. Um, you don't see pictures like this, a, a, a mom and her son watching a, uh, a mushroom cloud uh, uh, arising in the background in Nevada in the 1950s. You don't see public executions like this anymore. Grand fun. Let's all go down to the, the have a picnic and watch somebody be hanged. Or the KKK having fun at the, at the circus. Or more uh, relevantly, um, well, it's good. Again, as bad as these police shootings have been, it's good to remember it wasn't even a century ago when this was a thing. Just, just look at the faces of the people in this photograph. They're just like standing around like, yeah, it's another Friday evening of entertainment. Uh, th this is how bad it was compared to now. So as, as, as abysmal as 
as upsetting as it is for these police shootings that we've just witnessed, it's, again, it's nothing compared to, to what people used to do. Um, if you want to, I don't want to play this because it takes too long, but, uh, but, um, but uh, Nina Simone's version of Billie Holiday's um, uh, Strange Fruit is a disturbing song. Strange Fruit, uh, you know, hanging from the trees and, you know, blood on the leaves and blood on the roots and all. Ugh, anyway. Um, so we've come a long ways. And, uh, but what about, what about ISIS? What about violent forms of religion? They, they, they beheaded people. They, they burned people alive. Okay, so my talk's in three parts. So now I'm going to shift to talking about what causes all this to happen by using a current example like this and then comparing it and reminding us that we used to do things like this. Christians used to behead people and burn them alive. This is from a 12th century French illuminated Bible. It shows two Jews kneeling, about to be beheaded by two Christian warriors there with their swords, with Jesus looking on approvingly from above. Their crime was they killed Jesus. The Jews killed Jesus. Okay, this isn't, this isn't a moronic idea. Jesus was Jewish, so what? And in any case, if Jesus had to die to save you for your, from your sins so that you can spend eternity to heaven, shouldn't you be thanking whoever killed him because that was part of the theological plan, that whole thing was designed? Okay. This is just a bad idea that we have abandoned. So I, it's burning witches. For, this is a particular a heretic in this particular case. Uh, so I call this the witch theory of causality. That is, if you think that women cavorting with demons in the middle of the night causes crop failures, the plague, uh, death, accidents, shipwrecks, childhood deaths, and so on, then you're either insane or you lived 500 years ago when everybody believed this. So what happened with the witch theory of causality? We abandoned it. We debunked witches. There are no witches. There are no demons. It is demonstrably provable that women can't fly around on brooms. Okay, So that's a bad idea that we debunked. Here's a few other incorrect ideas about people that we've debunked that Jews poison wells or cause the Black Death, that slaves are better off enslaved than free. This was one of the big arguments in the, in the 19th century about why slavery was good. Oh, they're really better off. We're not, not just saving their souls for Christianity, but they, they eat better. It's like, a, it's like a country club, you know, compared to Africa. And, and so on, and they like it. There was actually a disease called drapetomania. Drapetomania was the tendency for slaves to want to escape to freedom. This was considered a disease, okay? This is a bad idea. Or that blacks are racially inferior. Or that women are too weak-willed and too emotional to run companies or countries. Or that gays want to spread the gay lifestyle. Really, this is a thing that... I have conservative friends. One of my cycling friends makes this argument. We're out riding, talking about current events. and I think gays want to spread the lifestyle. And It's like, really? You think like if you ran into a gay and he started talking to you, you might go on the other team? Well, not me. No, no, not me. It's like, right. And by the way, when did you choose to be straight? What do you mean when did I choose to be? What? Anyway, so this is, again, these are just dumb ideas that people hold that we can debunk. Or the next one that, you know, us atheists are immoral or, or we're communists or that animals don't feel pain and they don't suffer. These are the kinds of things we're still debunking there. Uh, so in other words, as Voltaire said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. So my point here is that 
Uh, it's, not that, uh, it's not that these people are immoral so much as that they're mistaken, and that correcting mistaken beliefs about other people is the first step toward expanding the moral sphere. Um, so now to shift to, to sort of the longer arc here of, of what I think happened. Uh, this worldview, uh, roughly called Enlightenment humanism or secular humanism or humanism, uh, began with the scientific revolution and built from there with this idea that I've been emphasizing that instead of moralizing about evil, we should use science to reason to solve problems. Uh, so what the scientific revolutionaries discovered, or what they, what the worldview they constructed, Bacon, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, is that the universe is governed by natural laws and principles that you can understand, sometimes even write out with mathematical equations, and then apply the knowledge to change the world. So the moment that the, the scientific revolutionaries began this in the physical sciences, it quickly moved into the biological sciences, medicine, for example, and then into what we would call the social sciences. So ever since the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, we've been applying the methods of science to solving social and moral problems. If you look at the background of all the founding fathers, the great enlightenment philosophers in Europe and, and England and the United States, you see most of them were scientists. Now, they didn't use that word. There was no word scientist until the late 1800s. They, they were natural philosophers, or they were naturalists, or they were philosophers, or whatever. But they were doing empirical research. They wanted to know, how does the world actually work? Can we discover certain principles? Uh, Montesquieu, for example, was one of the great French Enlightenment uh, philosophers who wrote a book called The Spirit of the Laws, L'Esprit de Loi. And it, the spirit, by spirit, he means the environment, the geography, the temperature, the nature of the place that the people live, what kind of work that they do, what kind of society that they have, and how that affects what kind of laws that they have. How would you structure a society to make it the most efficient, the most beneficial for the most people based on their these particular conditions? And he outlined all this. Uh, Francois Canet was the physician to the French king uh, who started a movement that became known as the French physiocrats. And so he was a physician and inspired by William Harvey, and he sort of made this metaphor between uh, how blood flows through a body in a circular motion with how currency flows through an economy. And so the analogy was that if you have a lot of blockages that keeps blood flowing smoothly, this causes disease or whatever. And then if you have too many governmental um, laws and regulations in the economy, it stops the smooth flow of capital in the economy. And so this is where the word, the phrase laissez-faire comes from. French word just means leave alone. Just stop blocking all the smooth flow of currency through an economy. This is sort of the basis of the economic sciences uh, and, and culminating with Adam Smith. Adam Smith was a, a professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh, but he's really constructing the first scientific treatise on how an economy works. Now, most people think the name of his book is The Wealth of Nations. That's not the title of his book. Here's the title of his book. An Inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. It's a scientific book. It's, a, it's, a, it's an empirical inquiry. The book is just chock-a-block full of, of empirical examples of how things work. Because he wanted to know the nature and the causes so he could figure out how do we get more nations wealthier. It's a scientific work. Uh, Thomas Hobbes wrote this great book, The Leviathan. It's a, it's a big, thick book. By the way, it's okay to to write big, thick books I discovered, sorry. <laughs> uh, he begins with particles in motion, atoms. He be he he's an atomist. He begins with this idea like Newton and Galileo and, the, and, and so forth, that, that there's particles in motions and they're bouncing around and somehow 
they impinge on our senses and then our senses form in our brains, simple ideas and then complex ideas. And, you know, he spends chapter after chapter what we would call associationist psychology, where ideas come from. And by the end, 400 pages later, he's got a civil society. Here's how we should structure a society. Now, you wouldn't want to live in the particular society he ended up with because he was supporting the king in the English Revolution, but that's, that's a aside. Um, what he considered himself, and even called himself, the, the Galileo of civil society. He was inspired by Galileo and William Harvey. And so he was considered himself a scientist. So that's my point, that the, these people were doing rational, empirical, hypothesis testing, the kind of, kind of thing we would call science today. Now, there's one more benefit to Enlightenment humanism based on science and reason, and that is scientific thinking is more abstract, and abstract reasoning expands the evolutionary circle of sentiment. So this is another one of my hypotheses about a more recent effect that's been discovered, uh, that we're getting smarter. Uh, this is called the Flynn effect. James Flynn is a, um, a New Zealand psychologist who discovered by uh, examining the data from IQ test score companies, that, uh, companies that make IQ tests that they, they, they have to keep renorming the test about every decade or so because people are getting better at the test. And so he went back and looked at the data, and he can track it back almost a century, that IQ scores are going up about three points every 10 years, but not the whole IQ score. If you look at the bottom line there of information, arithmetic, and, and vocabulary, those are the kinds of things you, you can actually practice and learn and train and take those courses to get better at. And that doesn't have much of an effect. <laughs> the effects that have gotten better uh, are, are in the, the abstract reasoning portions, the matrices and, and similarities. Uh, you remember matrices are things like this. So you're supposed to look at the top row, the middle row, and then, and then figure out which one is missing. So you see there's a 2, 3, 1, a 1, 2, 3, a 3, 1. So it's obviously a 2. Uh, and then you know, there should be some blank ones there because there's not in that third row. So it's number five. So you could sort of reason your way to doing that. This is one of the simpler ones, by the way, which is why I was able to figure it out. Oh, they get so complex, and if you really want to take the super hard ones that are, are not even legal, you go to Google where they, they give you these really hard... Or similarities, like what do dogs and rabbits have in common? So if you said dogs, use dogs to hunt rabbits, you're thinking more concretely. If you answered, well, both are mammals, then you're thinking like a scientist. You're classifying organisms by type, which is more abstract. It's sort of an abstraction. So for the past century, more people are thinking abstractly than concretely. That's... That's Flynn's hypothesis. I, I happen to agree with it. Um, and for example, he cites the uh, psychologist um, Alexander Luria, who went to uh, test these Russian peasants. And he asked them, for example, what do crows and fish have in common? And one answer he got was, well, absolutely nothing. A fish swims and a crow flies. And Luria asked, are, are they not both animals? Of course not. A fish is a fish and a crow is a bird. So the man could only think of objects as, as how we might use them, not as abstract objects part of a classification system. Uh, so there's Flynn and, and uh, you know, the IQ uh, bell curve there shifting upwards. So Flynn, he attributes it to more years in school, more technologies in society, more technical jobs, more access to abstract tasks. Our economy has shifted from agrarian and industrial to information-based. Um, in other words, instead of manipulating cows and plows and Machinery, we're manipulating words and numbers and symbols, and, and this rewires the brain in a, more, uh, in a way that's more, for more abstract reasoning. Um, so thinking scientifically requires reasoning abstractly, which is the foundation of morality. So consider the mental rotation required to implement the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This necessitates one to change positions, to become the other. 
and then to cognitively abstract what action X would feel like as the receiver instead of the doer, as the victim instead of the perpetrator. This is really hard to do for any of us, but the idea is that the, the better you are able to abstract, to rotate those figures, figure out which one goes where, maybe the better you are uh, able, able, other things considered uh, held constant, that able to do that. Uh, like in this New Yorker cartoon, how would you like it if the mouse did that to you? <laughs> that cat's going, eh? <laughs> 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 um, okay, so now I'm going to do a big data dump on you. This is all from uh, one section of my book just to provide some empirical evidence for this. Uh, for example, people in societies uh, with higher education and measured levels of intelligence, they commit fewer violent crimes. They cooperate more in experimental games, uh, like the prisoner's dilemma. They hold more classically liberal attitudes, and they're more receptive to democracy. So let's go through some of these studies. Uh, the psychologist Michael Sargent, for example, wrote a paper called Less Thought, More Punishment. So he found a correlation between a high need for cognition. This is a cognitive psychologist term for enjoying doing those kinds of puzzles like those matrices. Um, and low demand for retributive justice, even when such attitudes are controlled for age, sex, race, education, income, political orientation, so on. Okay, retributive justice is the kind of justice that has been that religions have given us for thousands of years. That is, give the guy his just desserts. You should just punish him. He should be made to suffer. This is what's called retributive justice, the punishment. Uh, restorative justice is well. But that doesn't help the victim. First of all, we should restore the damage that was done. And also, the goal should not be to just punish this guy for the hell of it, although it feels good. <laughs> we should try to fix him. Why, is he, why, is, why are criminals doing crime? Why are they doing this? Let's look at this as a scientist would look at it instead of as a moralist would do it. So Sargent's idea is that people uh, that enjoy these kinds of abstract reasoning are, are more likely to be in favor of restorative justice than retributive justice. Uh, the economist Stephen Burks administered 1,000 trainee truck drivers the matrices IQ test, like the ones I showed you, and then had them participate in a game of prisoner's dilemma in which they could either cooperate or defect with a game partner. You, I'm sure you're all familiar with prisoner's dilemma. You, you and some, another person have an opportunity to cooperate or defect, and the reward structure differs based on your first move or your second move, and, and so on. And, and it's better if both of you cooperate, you end up making more money or whatever the particular reward is for doing this. And what he found was that these wannabe truck drivers uh, scored, who scored high in the ability to spatially rotate those matrices figures were more likely to cooperate on the first move of, of a prisoner's dilemma game, even after for controlling for age, race, gender, schooling, income, and so on. Uh, in other words, because the, it, with the prisoner's dilemma, if it's a one-off, one-shot deal, the, the, you, should just, you should just defect and try to screw the guy and get, get, get your reward quickly. But, but if, you, if you reason out, well, okay, but we're going to play again and again and again, then it's better if we both cooperate, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll start cooperating and think, think in advance. So that's a more abstract reasoning sort of thing. Uh, the economist Garrett Jones confirmed the link in a meta-analysis of 36 prisoner dilemma experiments conducted between 1959 and 2003 in colleges and universities around the country, finding a positive correlation between a school's mean SAT score and the propensity of its students to respond cooperatively. So intelligence also predicts classical liberal attitudes such as the autonomy and well-being of individuals. An analysis of data from the National Longitude Study of Adolescent Health found that among 20,000 young adults there was a positive correlation between IQ and liberalism. 
Data from the General Social Survey clarified the link in noting that the correlation was between intelligence and classical liberalism of the Enlightenment kind, in which smarter people were less likely to agree that the government should redistribute income from the rich to the poor, but more likely to agree that the government should help African Americans to compensate for historical discrimination. Uh, the psychologist Ian Deary confirmed this link in a paper aptly titled, Bright Children Become Enlightened Adults. Drury found a positive correlation between the IQ of British children at the age of 10 and their endorsement of anti-racist, socially liberal, pro-working women attitudes at the age of 30, holding the usual intervening variables constant. Uh, so in other words, the causal arrow was from intelligence to moral abstraction confirmed by the 20-year gap between the measures. By the way, he defined enlightenment uh, the way I mean it, the philosophy emphasizing reason and individualism rather than tradition, secularism in other words. Uh, intelligence also predicts economic attitudes, most notably uh, such abstract concepts as how free trade is a form of positive sum, non-zero gain that is counterintuitive to our folk, tribal folk economic intuitions that most economic exchanges are zero sum in a fixed pie of wealth. Uh, it, it's just the way almost all of us think naturally. It's like if that guy gets that much, then I'm getting that much less. That's not how economists think about economies, but that's how intuitively, tribally, and that's how things used to be, but not now. The economist Brian Kaplan culled data from the General Social Survey and found a correlation between intelligence and openness to immigration and free trade and a reluctance to endorse government make-work projects, protectionist policies, and market interventionism. Uh, concrete thinking leads us to endorse economic tribalism along with populist and nationalist zero-sum attitudes toward other tribes. Whereas abstract reasoning leads us to consider other tribal members as potential trading partners to be respected rather than potential enemies to be conquered, enslaved, or killed. In, in other words, like we could invade Canada, the longest uh, undefended border in the world, and take the nickel with our troops, but it's a lot cheaper to just buy it. Uh, by the way, I should point out, I like this, this the, the bottom right there, we want free markets, not crony capitalism. The crony capitalists are people that claim they're in favor of capitalism, but they still want tribal benefits. They still want, you know, special privileges. That's not capitalism. Uh, this, this is an interesting idea. That the, 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 thinking about the economy as an abstract concept, the linguist Jeffrey Nunberg notes that in Bruce Springsteen's lyric, The River, do you know the song? You know, I got a, work, a job working construction for the Jonestown Company, but lately there ain't been much work on the account of the economy. Uh, Nunberg notes that a century ago, they might have said, on the account of the Jews, or the Negroes, or the rich peasants. So the economy has sort of been inculcated into all our thinking. It's a causal variable. It makes things happen. It, it's, it's a thing that exists. Intelligence predicts democratic tendencies, most notably the rule of law. Psychologist Reiner Rinderman ran correlational studies on a number of data sets from many different countries, examining their average scores on popular intelligence tests and measures of academic achievement from 1960 to 1972, and found that IQ and academic achievement scores predicted the level of prosperity, democracy, and the rule of law found in those countries in the subsequent period, 1991 to 2003, controlling for all the intervening variables. And then finally, uh, in this data dump, um, just recent studies in the last two years have found that um, reading changes the way people interact with other people and how capable you are of reading somebody else's facial expression. This is called mind reading, not the psychic type that we debunk in Skeptic, but 
the ability for me to look at you and your facial expressions and interact with you and figure out what it is you're thinking based on those cues that you get. And certain preliminary studies so far, there's half a dozen or so that I cite, show that people that read novels, uh, in particular fiction, seems to put you in the, in the mind of the character in the novel and look at the world through them, and that makes you better able to read facial expressions. So these little tests they do, they show different facial expressions. You have to tell, well, th this one's angry, this one's sad, this one's depressed, happy, whatever. And the people that read a lot are better able to do that. They've done these fMRI studies where somebody's you know, reading a passage out loud to them in these little headphones inside the brain scanner, and, and, and you can see that the, the, the person's brain that's getting scanned, the areas that are lighting up are the same as the person that's doing the reading who's in another scanner. Um, and, and so it, it maybe literally transports you into somebody else's head through the, the use of words. Now, there's some controversy about this, I should point out, because they, the people that do this call this high literature, sort of high culture literature, high brow literature, and then they contrast it with like People magazine or something. But I have a feeling there's, a, there's shades of gray in between there, and there's a lot of authors that are going to be really upset that they're in the one category and not the other category. And I'm not sure what it is exactly that's going on with that quality of the language, the vocabulary, or the sentence structures, or, what, or, or, what it, or if it's just the power of visual imagery. Um, okay, and then finally, let's look at, since we're here at the Long Now Foundation, I thought I would look at the future a little bit. So this is in the last chapter of the book. Uh, and so I start right off with the problem uh, that Arthur C. Clarke pointed out way, way long time ago. If we learned one thing from history of invention and discovery, it is that in the long run, and, after, and often the short run, the most daring prophecies seem laughably conservative. And this from the guy that came up with the idea of the, of the uh, telecommunications satellite. Um, still, as Robert Browning suggested, a man's reach should exceed his grasp or, you know, what's a heaven for? All right, so now I'm just going to just throw out some, just some crazy ideas that probably in a century from now they'll seem super conservative. But, uh, so and so I, I, I call this chapter uh, Protopia. Uh, because I reject the idea of, of utopias, that is, this unattainable place where everyone lives in perfect harmony forever. Every time anybody has tried to implement one of these, it, it leads to a big body count. It's a really bad idea. There's no such place. Instead, in tribute to Kevin Kelly, who's here, uh, protopia, his term that uh, it's progress in an incremental way, where every year it's better than the year before, but not by very much, just a micro amount. Uh, so this is all I'm suggesting. Let's try to get from here to there, but there is no there, there. We're just trying to make things better tomorrow than they are today. So instead of uh, thinking of quantum leaps from like 1950 jalopies to flying cars, just think of super smart cars just run by computers. Just your, every year, the next model is slightly better than like my new, my new Ford Flex has, my old one had heated seats. My new one has heated seats and air-conditioned seats. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. Okay, I know that doesn't sound like a big leap in moral progress, but <coughs> I, I live in Southern California, and, and in July and August, my ass is really happy about the air-conditioned seats anyway. <laughs> That's all I'm talking about, just micro. Okay, so let's look at two areas, politics and economics. Okay, so we're all used to the nation-state, and, and the, as the historian Quincy Wright noted, in 15th century Europe, there were over 5,000 independent political units by the early 17th century, these had coalesced into 500 political units, and by 1800, they were around 200. Today, there's around 50. So we've been on this sort of downward trend. So some 
speculate that, oh, maybe this will lead to a one-world government. I don't think so. I, I think actually just the opposite. And the reason is, is what I call the fixing the pothole problem, uh, that, that some government in 10,000 miles away is, doesn't care about the pothole right, right out there. Um, so maybe in centuries hence, there'll be no more nation states. Their borders so porous economically and politically that the very concept will fall into disuse, and in their stead, we'll see a return of the city-state. Uh, so my wife is from Germany. We just were there. We drove for hours and hours across different countries, and we didn't get stopped once. No borders. You can you can drive for six days across America and have to show your pa passport once. Um, you can actually do that in Texas and still be in Texas anyway. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Okay, so uh, but but the but, so the world is moving in this direction, not 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 of toward one world government, but but porous political borders that are just easier to cross. Uh, so instead of power obsessed kings and queens, vainglorious dictators and demagogues, megalomaniacal fears and dear leaders, egocentric presidents and prime ministers, perhaps the most powerful political person will be the mayor. Uh, so, um, I think you had Benjamin uh, Barber here. If, uh, I loved his book, If Mayors Ruled the World. So, and he talked about cities collect garbage and collect art rather than collecting votes or collecting allies. They put up buildings and run buses rather than putting up flags and running political parties. They secure the flow of water rather than the flow of arms. They foster education and culture in the place of national defense and patriotism. As New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia said, there is no Democratic or Republican way to fixing a sewer. <laughs> Again, solving problems is the, is the goal here. Um, and, and this is the direction we're going. This is the, the, the percentage of, of the world's population that lives in cities versus um, in rural, rural areas. We're just right there at uh, just barely crossed just a few years ago. Uh, for, of more than 50%, and now uh, we're projected by 2050 to be at about 70%, and by 2100 to be over 80% of the world's population will live in cities. So cities is where the action is. So in other words, we'll hit, we'll, we'll, the number of political units coalesced and solidified smaller and smaller, but instead of going all the way to one world government, bounce off the floor and, and back up into perhaps many different city-states. Another book I'd recommend, The End of Power, um, uh, in terms of like... The, big units that have a lot of power that control our individuality uh, is declining. Power is spreading and long-established big players are increasingly being challenged by newer and smaller ones, and those who have power are more constrained in the, the way that they can use it. Think of, um, well, I found one study here, how the weak uh, win wars. So here's a data set showing from 1800 to 1849, uh, only 11% of the weaker, uh, these are asymmetrical conflicts, where the weaker party wins, only 11%. 1850 to 1899, it almost doubled to 20%, from 1900 to 1949, up to 34, almost 35%. And then the last half century before our new century here, uh, it passed over into the majority, 55%. What, what am I talking about here? Uh, talking about like Vietnam, for example. You, you, it just doesn't work to just bomb somebody into oblivion. Uh, they end up winning the war, either for costs or, or bad public relations. Uh, declining power of big corporations, that is, this is the average company lifespan on the S&P 500 index, has been going down and down from 60 years in, in 1960 down to barely over a decade uh, projected in the next decade. Um, and, and so in other words, this is a, another decline of power. 
Okay, so in, in its stead then, um, what, what, how will these cities look like? So here's just some more kind of speculation that may turn out to be crazy or wrong, or maybe it'll be too conservative. Uh, but there are books, there are people to think about these things. Um, the Art of Community and Citadel Market and Altar uh, by Spencer Heath and his grandson, Spencer Heath McCallan. Uh, they, they, they just sort of got me thinking about we're already doing these kinds of proprietary communities. Uh, shopping centers are proprietary. Everything's owned privately, and, and there's no problems. There's no conflicts there. It's all solved through proprietary technology, social technologies. Condominiums are proprietary communities. Mobile home parks, retirement communities, industrial parks, private colleges and universities. Corporate campuses are proprietary communities. Hotels, if you think about a hotel, uh, they have streets, they have roads. The roads are either uh, horizontal, like corridors like that, or they're vertical, elevators. Um, they have town squares, like in the lobby. Uh, they have stores and restaurants. A lot of them have uh, music centers you can go to. You could take it, like if you go to Vegas, you, can, you could live in one of these Vegas <laughs> uh, casino hotels and never leave, and there's a lot of people who do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and they have various forms of public transportation systems that all works on a private proprietary basis. You don't, you don't need government to do this. Uh, there's people that have written about this. Robert Nozick at Harvard, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Forget Utopia, no such thing. Anarchy, we don't want anarchy. You've got to have rules. And uh, Pete Leeson at, uh, at George Mason University has just written a book on this, Anarchy Unbound. The word anarchy is a bad word because people think, you know, lawlessness. No, we need laws, we need rules, and so forth. But there's ways to do that without a national, huge, gigantic, cumbersome government. Okay, my second subject, Protopian economics. It's also called Star Trek, Star Trek economics. You know where you just go to the replicator and you say, you know, Earl Grey hot, and there it is. But maybe you want, you know, I want a Tesla car. There it is. Well, well I don't know if you can do that yet. But uh, this is the idea, you know, money doesn't exist in the 24th century because there's just so much stuff. Okay, this sounds insane at the moment, but there are people that think about this. You just follow the curves out. Here's the curve for the last 2,000 years in terms of the amount of prosperity and wealth that's available in the world. Uh, this is the projection. Okay, so that's 6,000. In $2,000, the average per capita GDP for the entire world is $6,000 a year. So this is projected to double by 2030 uh, to almost $12,000. The little dip is the financial meltdown there in 2008, 9, and 10. Um, this from UC Berkeley economist um, uh, Brad DeLong. Uh, so, so this graph shows the percentage of uh, growth in real-world GDP per capita from, for the last 1,000 years. So the, everything happened pretty much in the last two centuries, and a lot more is going to happen in the next century. So I just did some quick calculations here. So this would be like getting a raise at, at the end of the 21st century, but, but in $2,000 that you had right now. So if you made so if the average per capita GDP is $6,000, it would then jump to $54,000, but not in 2100. Now, it would be like having that right now. Or if you make, say, $100,000 a year, you'd all of a sudden be making $900,000 a year. Now, whatever the real figure will be in uh, 100 years, it, you know, because of inflation and so on. Don't worry about that. It's just that's how much more you'd make now. You could buy seven Teslas, nine Teslas, you could, and have leftover for some lattes at Starbucks. <laughs> okay, these are projections, of course, but the idea is that they're not unrealistic. They're not crazy. 
uh, based on just what's been happening already. Okay, I know, what about poverty? All right, I deal with income inequality, but too many slides, too much data. Um, it, it, it's real, but, but, but instead of worrying about how much the guys at the top are making, let's lift everybody at the bottom up. And uh, so these are the projections for the end of poverty. The Gates Foundation is projecting uh, by 2030, it'll all be gone. That may be optimistic, but still, you can see here, this just going all, oh, sorry, going all the way up to 2010. So the UN defines poverty as um, regular poverty is making $2.50 a day or less, extreme poverty $1.25 a day or less. So the Gates Foundation and the UN is also projecting uh, by 2030, no one in the world will be making, adjusted for in, uh, inflation and so on. No one will be in poverty anymore. Poverty will be over by 2030, maybe even earlier, but that, that, that would still be good. Okay, so finally to wrap it up here then, uh, we've made this huge transition from what I call Civilization 1.0 of just primates living in hunter-gatherer, just little bands and so on, all the way to a, you know, a world, just imagine a world without any borders, no political borders, no economic borders, you can travel, you can trade, you can do anything you want with anybody you want without any obstacles. Just imagine that, okay, we're a long ways from there, but you know, we're getting there. Uh, so I'm going to finish where I started with the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and then we'll have some discussion and questions. That, so here, Dr. King is referring to our moral nature, that each of us is two selves. The great burden of life is to always try to keep that higher self in command, and every time that a lower self acts up and tells us to do wrong, let us allow that higher self to tell us that we were made for the stars, created for the everlasting, born for eternity. Well, I'm not a Baptist preacher, but I'm a scientist, so that uh, final sentence from the book, that we are in fact made from the stars. Our atoms were forged in the interiors of ancient stars that ended their lives in spectacular paroxysms of supernova explosions that dispersed those atoms into space where they coalesced into new solar systems with planets, life, and sentient beings capable of such sublime knowledge and moral wisdom. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. Morality is something that carbon atoms can embody given a billion years of evolution, the moral arc. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Warren, uh, Kevin tells me the first four questions are basically the same questions, so I'll do all four and then okay. uh, all right. you'll have time to think about them. Warren Bach uh, says if we've debunked the 5,000 year old idea that, uh, 500 year old idea, which is cause infant death and uh, crop failure, what do you think we will have debunked as insanity 500 years from now? Oh boy. Um, Irina. <laughs> Melnick says, what moral issues do you think we will be facing as a society in about 200 years from now? Richard says, what moral norms 100 years from now would uh, be unrecognizable to us today? For example, gay marriage is someone from 1915. And William Ralph says, what is today's equivalent to 1950s interracial marriage that is the thing that only 
4% of us support today, but will be unquestioned in a few decades. So, yeah, oh boy. You know, you're following this arc here, yeah. so we expect you to know what's uh, <laughs> coming I don't know next. anything any more than anybody else. Uh, well, first of all, I, I think, um, well, the first one, religion is still a pretty, pretty powerful force in the world. Still the majority of humans believe in God of some kind. Most of them are monotheists. I think this is a problem. I do. Um, and you have only to look to the Middle East to uh, see the empirical evidence of that statement. It's true that Jews and Christians don't behead and burn people anymore, as I said, because we debunched, debunked that. They went through the Enlightenment. There's one major world religion that hasn't had an Enlightenment yet. They haven't even had a Reformation yet. Uh, so, um, Ayanna Hirsi Ali, uh, you know, want, wants to reform Islam. She's written a book about this. Uh, I think that's not even, even that's not enough. Uh, you know, when Christianity went through the Reformation, millions of people died. You know, the body counts were high. Uh, enlightenments are better than Reformations because they don't require uh, violence. Hopefully. How long did that civil war within Christianity go on? Well, that about a century and a half. Okay. I mean, the Thirty Years' War was the big one, and the Treaty of Westphalia kind of put an end to that. But, but so the, the by, by your were, hypothesis of things getting better. The civil war that's going on within Islam between Shia and Sunni would not take as long this time. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, so what's the solution? I mean, in the long run, it'd be better if people didn't believe in supernatural deities and beings at all. But I, I understand I'm, I'm still in the minority for that. <laughs> uh, but, but let's just start with like where, where Ian wants to start. Let's just have the moderate imams come out and say that's not in the book. Okay, you know, the, the real meaning of the book is nonviolence. Okay, the book doesn't really mean anything. People wrote it. It's, I mean, it means what the people wrote, not that, you know, there's a true meaning that, because God wrote it. Uh, but still, whatever it takes, you know, the moderates to reform the extremists, I'm all in favor of it. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes troops and, and guns to stop people from doing things like that. And I'm afraid that's where we're at at the moment. I'm discouraged about that. Okay, religion is kind of your perspective on things. Um, there was a good article in, by John Burns in the New York Times last week where he was reflecting on the... He's retiring from being a fantastic international journalist for the New York Times at the age of 70, and he was asked for the you know, Sunday thing to do a kind of a reflection piece. What have you learned from 30 years of beating your brains out in all of the tough places in the world? Um, and his conclusion was that he has seen more injustice and cruelty and immorality and viciousness and uh, weird rationalization for doing what turned out to be vile things in places that have strong ideologies rather than doubts or an endless negotiation about what's right and so on. He was not talking about religious ideology. He was talking about um, any kind of ideology, sometimes religious, sometimes um, forms of political, some big story that, uh, you know, communism was supposed to be a scientific mm -hmm. understanding of how society should be organized. They had their own version of Leviathan. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, so North Korea has an ideology which is, you know, more ironclad and tougher on a society even than uh, in the worst of, of uh, ISIS, for example. 
but you don't talk about ideologies that are not religious very much. Would you do so now? Uh, sure, yep. Um, but, well, because communism is not the problem it used to be, so I didn't right. have to spend much time on it. It's another bad idea debunked. It was not a scientific idea. It was called you know, scientific socialism or whatever, but that was a thin <coughs> patina over a deeper sort of anti-enlightenment romanticism about race and soil and and particular ideas that you know uh, of the uh, uh, of, of a class of people mm -hmm. so it's in a way it's it's the utilitarian argument run to its extreme dangerous form uh, that that is that the good of the group is more important than the good of you the individual your your own survival and flourishing so, so the ferocious nationalism fits in that area yeah absolutely and and that idea has been on the wane this is that 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 book the decline of power that idea that like national pride and, and we should go to war because it's great for the nation. This mm -hmm. is now thought of as kind of a stupid idea. I mean, who thinks like that anymore? Well, there's a few in Texas uh, and <laughs> Republicans. Uh, yeah, but I mean, in a way, you know, I don't mean to, to, to pick on one party, uh, but Theodore but, Roosevelt but that, was a Republican. Who oh, I, I understand, and and, and te but but even Roosevelt was totally in favor of war. This idea that it's it's uplifting, it's heroic. He got a peace prize for stopping a war between uh, Russia and Japan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, but but okay. So back to the, you know, the no the Nazis were not a scientific, you know, ba a scientific based society. It was a thin patina over this idea of of race and soil mm -hmm. and a people, a folk that was, you know. Okay, so you know this, you know the thought experiment about the trolley going down the tracks and it's going to kill the five workers mm -hmm. and you're standing there at the switch and you can throw the switch and the trolley goes down this other track and it'll kill one worker. If you don't do anything, it goes down the track and kills the five workers who mysteriously can't hear the train coming or something. Uh, and, and, and so do you throw the switch? Do you kill the one to save the five? Okay, millions of people have taken this test online. Almost everybody says, I would throw the switch. It's a utilitarian calculus. I would kill one to save five. Okay, so, th but the problem with that is that, first of all, no one asked the one how he feels about this. And, 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 the se and second of all, things like the Bill of Rights protect us from that very problem. That is, it doesn't matter how many people think I should die to save how many pe people over here. I still have the right to live. So that, that's why certain uh, rights trump utilitarian arguments, like, like, like the rule of mob democracy. We don't mm -hmm. allow that because of that problem. And so all these ideologies you mentioned, all of them, are based on this utilitarian argument. The good of the group trumps the good of the individual. No, it doesn't. It does mm -hmm. not. And, and that's a moral progress. Question from Damon. Uh, what is the biggest threat to the moral arc? Uh, the biggest threat, well, um, you know, the, just the immediate one is, is, is religion, Islam. It's the elephant in the room, I'll just say it. One of the uh, days, I mean, you're, I think you see a secular trend. So when religion goes away, uh, moral arcs story is finished? Well, I, no, because I still worry about, you know, nationalism rising up, the whole idea of a nation. I mean, what is a nation? This, you know, the whole Putin thing has kind of brought this back up. Is it the geography? Is it the language? Is it the culture? Is it the beer they drink? <laughs> you know, what is it that we define a group as? And this is just an archaic, another bad idea. You know, we're all the members of the same species. Just forget the boundaries, the borders, the language, the beer. Uh, you know, those are interesting little side lights of places you go that are fun, like, oh, they got an orange bridge, let's go walk across it, that's cool. But that's different from which saying... Which you did today, right? <laughs> which we did today, yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm sitting. It was a long walk. Uh, 
but but again, that so that that kind of group national whatever you want to call it group ideology. It's against it the utilitarian argument run run amok. It's too it's too much. So that I worry about. And then back to the earlier question, I think animal rights is, I think we're a long ways from treating animals as sentient beings, but we're getting there. I mean, it's a, it's, that's probably going to be decades, maybe a century. I mean, mm -hmm. the percentages of vegans and vegetarians in Europe and the United States is still single digits. It's a long ways from even being two digits. Do you have a position personally in that? Do you eat meat? <clears throat> um, uh, excuse me, I didn't hear that. Do you eat meat? Uh, <laughs> I, what's that? Oh, that. Mark says, Next do question. you eat meat? Do you eat farmed animals? Would you eat dogs farmed for food as they do in some Asian countries? Okay, I will say it, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Uh, I, had, I had a kale salad and, and, and carrot soup today, so that was, that was a good step. And you're not taking me to a steakhouse tonight afterwards, are you? I eat meat. What can I say? You know, because the temptation. Well, okay. But I'm so, silent generation. I'm but, dead soon. That's from right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you that way. <laughs> From eating all that fat, the heart. Uh, oh. <laughs> Kevin Kelly asks, can we have moral progress without economic progress? You made a big case at the end here did, about yeah, the hockey no, stick I, of uh, wealth. I, I think everything. the economic progress is a big part of it. I mean, just for just just to get people out of. Uh, poverty. Who cares what global warming is going to be in a thousand years if you don't have anything to eat tomorrow? You know, so we got to get everybody out of that to care about the bigger moral issues. Is like, global warming a moral issue? Well, I think it is in terms of, well, in the bigger picture, it is. You know, just the climate just, is suffering. We've got to. No, 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 not, not that. Just how we live. That, okay. That, that you know, it, that is, I, I, uh, the idea of restricting poor people from using fossil fuels, for example, I don't think that's fair because that's the quickest way out of poverty is to shift from burning cow pies in your hut to using coal-fired factories that, are, you know, that give you electricity. We got to get these people out of poverty somehow. If you here, can here. do it through your, through your small nuclear you know, units, I'm all in favor of that. Forget fossil fuels if we, if we can do it, but I don't see a, a way to get them out of there in the next five years, ten years. Okay. But, but I'm open to ideas, uh, you know, other solutions. Let me uh, stroll through religion again for a minute. There's a book by Rodney Stark a few years ago. I uh, got turned on to by Garrett Gruner, who may well be here, uh, called One True God. Yeah. Amazing book. Uh, it changed my mind about some stuff. And what he's pointing out in there is that the, the most ferocious religions, the ones that are probably toughest in terms of morality that you speak of, are ones that have... Um, uh, a monotheistic situation. One, true God, which means all the others can forget it. They're not the true God. They usually have a book, a Koran or a Bible or something. And uh, there are religions uh, such as Buddhism, many kinds of Buddhism, that are not particularly one true God oriented and are not as ferocious in terms mm -hmm. of their morality. And maybe the, the kind of uh, political national ideology you talk about, that you often see things like president for life. If you go into a country and if you see a photograph of the leader on the wall in everybody's place of business, uh, suggests there may be some kind of local version of one true God going yeah. on. Do you cult buy of any of that? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a cult of personality, yeah. It's tapping into certain ancient neural pathways there that you know look up to alpha males or whatever. It's, some, it's something like, because we're a hierarchical social primate species. Okay, so you've written about your brain on religion. Yeah. What are you talking about here, neural pathways? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just this, 
um, glomming on to certain um, social structures that a lot of people like, that are hierarchical in nature, that are predictable, that are comfortable, um, and there's a, you know, there's a sizable portion of the population that uh, prefers, just by genetics, just, just by temperament, mm -hmm. they prefer a worldview that's stable, predictable, hierarchical. They're you ever called, been in one of those? They're called Republicans. Yeah. No, <laughs> no yeah. sorry. But no, I, I look, was, I was a soldier once, and I was in that. And it was a deeply socialist situation. And you know, you have a boss, and they had a boss, and chain of command is pretty strict, and all of that stuff. Um, it was very comforting. And gets a lot done when it wants to make something difficult happen. Uh, have you ever been in an organization like that where you really, you know, have a place and that's your place? Well, I, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a libertarian, and <laughs> it's a little bit like herding cats. Uh, you know, we okay in libertarian circles. That's really funny, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've sort of been disowned by libertarians because I now think we should have some gun control and climate change control and things like that. And well, and, now and, yes, I know. So well, okay. <laughs> Well, I go where the data goes, uh, uh, rather than where the political well, ideology. Are you partly saying, and this is the whole idea of science as I understand it, is science is organized skepticism. And it sounds like you are organized enough about your own skepticism that you're willing to change your mind about, say, gun control, even though you're a libertarian. Yeah, that's right. Is that what we're talking about? Is that yeah, part right. of morality, is having that open-mindedness to take a different view on something? Okay, yes, that's right. I think one of the the contributions of the Enlightenment was to say there are no final answers. We have to just work toward finding better answers, mm -hmm. and it's a never-ending process, which is what democracy is. In a way, democracy is like an experiment. Jefferson referred to it as an experiment like 27 times in, his, mm -hmm. in the Constitution and so on. And, and because we don't know how to run a country. Nobody does. So we have to continually retweak the variables called elections, and run it again for a few years and see how it goes. And There has to be adjustable constantly because we don't know how to So predict. is that part of what you like about mayors is that they're, tr they're all trying different things and you used to get a sort of, and they watch each other. And sort of yeah. They, yeah. They, in a sense, are uh, as the body of mayors, like the, you know, the, what is it, the, the 60 cities that have organized for climate change, the C40, yep. they were called, and yep. it got bigger, um, which Benjamin talked about here. That's partly, like you say, based on potholes and sewer systems, but it also seems to be based on this, they don't have to pay attention to each other, but they get kind of rewarded for paying attention to what each other. We had Gavin Newsom on the stage here, and, and uh, he said, I keep a very close eye on Seattle and Vancouver and Portland. And we want to beat them in San Francisco. <laughs> we want to beat them, yes. The competitive nature of it, it's great. Because that's what science is. Science is very competitive. Uh, the reason we, uh, we're reasonably confident that global warming is real and human cause is not because there's a consensus of scientists who say so, because it's like a democracy. It's because the scientists are so competitive with each other that by the time we get to the finished product, we know it's already been tested and competed and, and so forth in this marketplace of ideas that some young scientists would debunk some other scientist's theory of whatever, the ice cores or the cloud you mm -hmm. know, models or whatever, that, that that's that competitiveness that gets us a little bit of pro the protopia, just a little bit more uh, uh, closer to the truth, not, not truth with a capital T, but just a little more accuracy of our models. So part of your guidance- economically. Part of your guidance is never stop arguing. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, the argue, arguing's good. This is what the, this is what the whole enlightenment was about. Was 
you know, these scientists competing with each other just uh, the market for the marketplace of ideas. There are no final answers. This is the problem with religion. They think, well, that's the answer. No, we don't know the answer. T. Gross um, asks, what would it take to achieve the equivalent of Moore's Law for moral progress? Kind of impatient. So you've showed a, a pretty, you know, kind of most of those things were going along pretty flat, and then there was a bend, and then they've been kind of yeah. flat since. It's not exactly an asymptotic curve. No. Uh, do no, you want an asymptotic curve? Or well, that'd be nice, but uh, are human, you sure? human nature, well, maybe not, because we should, again, the problem of making huge leaps is that if you make a mistake, it could be catastrophic. Say more about that. Well, I, I, again, before we change a law, you know, just change a whole legal system totally and overnight, uh, because if you're wrong, then that could, that could lead to a high body count. It's just historically that's what happens. That's what that was the problem with the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. So there's this great um, uh, debate between Thomas Paine and um, and Edmund Burke about the American Revolution versus the French Revolution. The, mm -hmm. and the American Revolutionaries were were fairly incremental about it. Let, let's just not let's not throw overthrow everything. Let's just change the tax law here. Let's just change this little thing here and there and so mm -hmm. forth. And uh, in the in the Declaration of Independence, it says right you know right there. That th things should we should not just throw things over. We should have really good reasons for it, and here's our 27 reasons, and mm -hmm. here's little things we want to do. Whereas the French revolutionaries just went crazy and just started cutting everybody's heads off and so on, and that's why it wasn't so. So, so I mean, there's certain institutions we we shouldn't hang on to, like slavery, torture, death penalty, things like that. But there's other institutions that you know that that you know that that are good that we should keep. The rule of law and, and so forth. So, so it's okay with you if religion takes a time disappearing from the world. Well, it's, I don't have much say in the matter. <laughs> uh, I'd like to have more say, but uh, I think we're. I, I think you know, in terms of like you know, my atheist friends, like Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and so forth. That we you talk guys about this all, all the hang time. out together. You yes, all we do. Here. Yes, I know. I know. It's it's like a club. We have a drinking club. <laughs> You know, we talk about well, you know, when's the you know when will we be the majority? You know, we're a long ways from that. Uh, but the fastest growing religious group in America are the nuns. The people we're one out of five, twenty percent, twenty percent, and it's and it's thirty three percent of millennials born after nineteen eighty one. Again, the young people are going to rock. <laughs> uh, in Europe, it went from uh, you know just in, in in about half a century it went from the majority position to, to the minority position in, in many European countries uh, uh, religi religiosity rates of religiosity so that's encouraging uh, here's a question I don't understand but you might uh, from Bob Kopak says do you ever feel you're a modern man stuck in a postmodern world yeah that sounds like I, a... I heard you referring to people magazine a little you know <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a song or something uh... I'm not sure what that post. I think aren't we post post modern by now? Yeah, I think we are post, yeah, post modern. Yeah, so that solves that. You know, the problem is, is you know, we're all stuck in where we're stuck. In 100 years from now, who knows? This is this will probably be laughably conservative. Uh, I mean, it's, so my wife and I were just doing my European book tour. So my first stop was Amsterdam, and so the pub, my publicist sent along this literature saying this provocative new book that suggests gay marriage and pot legalization, and they're like. Provocative. <laughs> right. We've been doing this for years. It's with you Americans. So you know, uh, maybe in a century from now, this will just be whatever. Uh, here's a question from God. God. <laughs> yeah. Would God like to stand up just so we can see? <laughs> now listen, I don't know Dawkins that well. Okay. <laughs> 
Anyway, God's question is, is there an ultimate morality? What does society look like when it's at the pinnacle of morality? Okay, no, there's no ultimate morality. There's no pinnacle. There's no there, there. There's no utopia. Don't aim for that. Just, again, just try to make tomorrow a little bit better today. By the criteria of expanding the moral sphere to include more members of our species and other sentient beings into our moral consideration and by, by what I call the survival and flourishing of sentient beings. Just... Just try to do that tomorrow better than today. Uh, the, pro- the problem of the moment you design, try to design a society that's infinite happiness for everybody forever, that then, you, then the problem is, is back to the, the trolley problem. What about the one person that says, I object? How evil is this guy for stopping us from achieving infinite happiness for everybody for eternity? Then it's okay to kill him. That's, that's always the problem. Uh, all right, here's one for the atheist in you. Uh, this is not from God. This is from Andrew. Uh, <laughs> well, God's right-hand man. <laughs> and uh, he's referring to Paul Bloom's uh, 2009 work. He spells it O-2009, thank you. Uh, shows that atheists give less to charity, uh, give less change to the homeless, and give less blood to their religious counterparts, I guess other atheists. Um, yes, well, it, uh, that, that was actually uh, um, David Brooks's book uh, called really? "Who Cares." It's called well, "Who Cares." Pro- maybe, maybe Bloom okay, cited right. it or something. Anyway, uh, yeah, I wrote about this Scientific American. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, if you, you you select certain criteria that religious people are better at, they're better at organizing the troops. Like, hey, everybody, Sunday morning, tomorrow, let's all go down to the blood bank and give blood. Okay, so we do that, you know. So there, are, but there are atheist groups that do this. This Sunday assembly that I spoke at Sunday, they had like a, a little packages for poor people and so on. There's nothing that any religious group could do that, that a secular group can't do, and there's plenty that do. It's just that they still outnumber us. <laughs> so it's true, they give more, uh, more blood, more, more, more time. But, but, but that's certain criteria. But there's others that, you know, that we do well at. So, but the other wait, answer that... Wait, wait, what, what, do athe- what are atheists really generally Well, here I'm, ta- here I'm talking about secular atheist governments in Europe like Holland, for example, that has a, a tight social safety net where everybody is taken care of. That's true. And the religions there have nothing to do. We ran into this huge mm-hmm. church in The Hague. This thing was magnificent, and it was all locked up, and on the door was this big poster with a picture of a corporate banquet inside with a phone number. <laughs> you can rent the church for a corporate banquet. This is the future of religion. I'm telling you. Mark my word. The Vatican is going to make a great art museum. It already is an art museum. Um, so, in other words, the, but this is a serious point. That that is, why are Europeans less religious than Americans? It, one answer is that one of the things religions do is take care of poor people. If the government does it, if everybody has health care and everybody's raised to a certain minimal level of survival and flourishing, then you don't need religion. That's one answer. Well, you could probably test that in Utah. That would be interesting. Utah, well, uh, that, well, you, you, well, you can, although the Mormon fundamentalists still try to uh, soak the government by, they, they consider the government evil, so if you get on welfare, you can damage something like that. But Mormons actually have a fairly extensive um, uh, tithing program, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this includes like capital gains and, you know, if you sell property and so on, you, and uh, so they do, they do t- take, 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 take good care of each other, so you don't really, they don't need, well, anyway, the, the, the bottom line is... Getting people up out of poverty and taking care of people. If the government does it, religions, you don't need religion to do it. 
So that, that would be, that's, that's one. The, the other answer is that Ameri where the government doesn't support religion, uh, then they have to compete in the marketplace, and American religions have gotten really good at telemarketing and, and making religions more mm -hmm. exciting. In European countries, that the government supports church. Mm -hmm. My wife had to quit church officially to get them to quit taking money out of her paycheck every month for the Catholic church. Can you believe that in Germany? They take money, they withhold money from your paycheck and give it to your religion. Whether you want it or not, you have, to, you have to opt out. They do it until you opt out. And she had to go down and fill out this form. She wore her four horsemen, Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, <laughs> T-shirt. It was great. <laughs> if, I, if I want to support atheism, where do I send money? Well, in Germany, the, in Germany, the humanists uh, qualify as a religion. And they get money. They get tax money. This is why Scientology tried to become a religion in Germany but the Germans have had some experience with fringe groups in the past. Uh, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we know what you're up to. And, you're not, and so they got uh, disqualified. They were not allowed to be a religion in Germany. We had Steven Pinker talk here a while back on The Decline of Violence and his amazing book. How do you feel the work you've been doing relates to the work he was doing in this area? He was focusing mainly on violence, but he drew a lot of attention to basically cruelty and injustice as on the same related declining curve as, as violence. Uh -huh, yep. Do you see yourself in complete continuity with yep. his story? Yeah, I'm just trying to, uh, uh, Steve's book's a great book, uh, Better Angels of, of Our Nature, if you haven't read it, you should read mm -hmm. it. Uh, and, and then the sequel. <laughs> uh, he bl he blurred uh, your book, basically, uh, as a Yeah, sequel. I'm, I'm just pushing out from there, saying, hey, look, if we know that democracies are better than autocracies by 27 different measures, then we ought to be doing things to help people become democracies, to help people around the world that are being oppressed and that have their civil liberties suppressed and so on. We ought to do this. Well, why ought we to do it? Well, then you need some kind of a, a foundation for you know, breaking that is-ought barrier that, you know, well, science can't tell us anything about what we ought to do. Yes, it can. Mm -hmm. We've already been doing this. Uh, for two centuries, we've been doing this. We've been saying, look, we can discover certain things about the social world and the economic world and the political world that are really true. Democracies really are better than autocracies. Absolutely. Look at North Korea versus South Korea. You can see the difference from space. One is black and dark and dead, and the other one is alive and rich. Rich... At, at night. At night. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's the best time to see the mm -hmm. lights. Um, and, uh, and South Koreans, their per capita GDP is about 20,000 a year versus North Koreans' per capita GDP is about 1,000 a year. That's 20-fold difference. That's a huge raise in the quality of your food and standard of living. Uh, democracies and, 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 and countries that are open to trade and so on are, are just better off on every measure. So once you know that, then shouldn't, don't we have a moral obligation to help people that, that want our help? Yes. You can't just force everybody in the world to be this, but you know, we should help them that, that want help. Anyway, that's my... Uh, yeah, spreading democracy was part of the um, reason given for uh, invading Iraq. Well, yes, okay, so um, some ideas are better than others. <laughs> okay, um, um, but so that you, was probably more of an excuse, well, in a can. Right, yeah, it was more yeah, of an yeah, excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was an, an excuse that played well, so. You know, For that, a while. That had a problem. Yeah. Anyway, um, last question. Um, when Pinker's book came out, uh, one, it was not a huge seller for him, unlike some of his previous books, like The Language Instinct. 
Uh, two, there was a certain amount of pushback from you know, Elizabeth Colbert, the New Yorker, spent three pages saying violence is still happening, pay no attention to his book. Uh, I imagine you've had some pushback for reporting on this good news. Apart from that, both you and Pinker are drawing attention to a trend of improvement on an area which we all care about. Does being aware of the trend change anything? Well, I hope so. Or not. Well, that's the idea. Like any other scientific trend, we would mark like global warming. You know, the moment you see, well, okay, here's the trend, here's the potential consequences, we ought to do something about it. They're right there. We're going from the way something is to what we ought to do. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. So what ought we to do about the moral arc? It sounds like it's a given, and I'm going to sit around and watch it happen. <laughs> no, it's not a given. It's not inevitable. Now, the whole thing could, could reverse, of course. But very unlikely. Think about it. What are the chances that slavery would be brought back as a legal institution in Europe or America? Very unlikely. Well, there is a lot of somewhat informal but real slavery going on with more people and with more economics stirring around, more globalization and so on. There's a lot of people who are owned. Yes, okay. That, but that's a slightly different thing than we've already won the legal battle. Okay. You can't legally own somebody. That battle's mm -hmm. over. Now all we have to do, and it's illegal in every country in the world, all you have to do is enforce it. So enforcing the law is different than changing the law. We've already done that. So, uh, or, or, or just imagine, you know, like any country, any state in the Union or in Europe that would take the vote away from women, or as mm -hmm. my wife likes to say, away from men. What? <laughs> you know, it's that perspective thing. Uh, again, that's very unlikely to happen. Not impossible. Uh, but, you know, the trends, the further down the road you go, the harder it is to reverse the trend. It could happen, yes. None of this is inevitable. It came about because we made it happen. So, no, we can't sit back and, and, and watch it. We have, to, we have to be vigilant, active. We have to make it happen. So the, the frame of mind shifts, but you're saying that the application, the enforcement, uh, is something that actually takes awareness of this trend and, and doubling down on carrying it Yeah, out. absolutely. I mean, once you say, well, look, look what happened from here to here. Well, what made it happen? Well, these six things. Okay, well, then we ought to do more of that. Mm -hmm. If we know, reasonable, reasonably confident that it, it works. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the people that push back against uh, me and Pinker, for example, it's really a disservice to the civil libertarians that have been fighting for the past century, all the suffragettes through... Dr. King and so on, it's basically saying they did nothing. Their, 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 their efforts were, were meaningless. Things are as bad as they've ever been. Come on, that's not fair to them. Mm -hmm. They did a lot. Look what they've done. And that's why you've got to show, show those pictures once in a while, of like the, you know, the, the lynchings. By the way, one of the other things I found doing this research, I was amazed. I always think of lynchings, you know, blacks in the South being lynched. Chinese Americans or Chinese were lynched in California, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the, in the 10s and you know, 1890s through 1920s and so on. And uh, so, again, that, that's the sort of thing that's come to an end. The last lynching, I think, was 52, 1952, something like that. So it's been a, over half a century. So that's progress. Come a long way, a long way to go. Thank you for helping. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.